We're moving on in the Sermon on the Mount past the Beatitudes. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, and praise your Father who is in heaven. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Now, the Trekkies can tell you that whenever Captain Kirk and the Starship Enterprise would come to a new planet, a new civilization... They had, in all their dealings with that new civilization, they had to always respect, what? The prime directive. I was trying to find out if there were any Trekkies out there. I thought somebody would just immediately say so, but you're smarter than to uh, reveal your existence, I'm sure. (laughs) But what is the prime directive? The prime directive was, you do not interfere with the evolution of any particular planet or civilization. Why? Well, the assumption by the producer or the creator of... uh, of Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry, the, the, uh, the assumption is that, that all existence, all creatures are inevitably evolving toward higher and higher social, mental, and physical life forms. So we can't do anything to try to muck it up. Now, Star Trek is based on an outmoded idea that was around for about 100 years, and especially in the 1900s and uh, the 1800s and the early 1900s, early 20th century, it was painful to read what the poets and the philosophers and the scientists said about the inevitability of human progress. I mean painful, because you hear you have, uh, here's a great quote by H.G. Wells, you know, a well-known uh, uh, British writer in that era, and he says this at one point, Can we doubt that our race will presently realize our boldest imaginations? Unity. Peace in a world more splendid and lovely than any garden or palace ever known. Going from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. And just 20 years later, he wrote this. Same man. Homo sapiens, as he is pleased to call himself, is played out. His depravity has come near to breaking my spirit. That optimism of inevitability, uh, the inevitability of human progress has changed. In the 1850s, there was a novel written called Carl Island about a bunch of young English schoolboys who are shipwrecked on an island and they have to build a whole new world and civilization. It's a world, it's like a paradise of love and equality. And of course, in the 1960s, William Golding comes along, writes the very same plot in a book called Lord of Flies, gets a bunch of English schoolboys that uh, are shipwrecked on an island, and it doesn't quite turn out the same way. Instead, they vie for power, they kill each other, they hunt one another down. You see, the optimism has played out. And the characteristic of the 20th century is a deep and a deepening cynicism. Cynicism in every area, whether it's arts or sciences or government, cynicism both formally and informally. Cynicism about any real human progress or any real ability to deal with our problems. And... uh, Let's face it, every election you see the deeper cynicism about politicians. We don't trust politicians. But look, look, look at the deeper and deeper cynicism about ministers. Look what's happened in the last five years. And I I feel it. I see people saying, you make your living out of organized religion. 
There's deeper cynicism about, about doctors. You see in the New York Times recently, the number of people that say doctors are just in it for the money. The cynicism continues to grow. We don't trust politicians. We don't trust business now, you see. Well, we always knew it all along, but now we see that those people who were uh, you know, going out of business, they were crooks. We kind of knew it all along. We don't trust government. We don't trust anybody. We're, we're in this position. Everybody in this place is a crook but me and you, and sometimes I wonder about you. And the one thing the media doesn't seem to uh, run as much is the Gallup polls that show that people don't believe what they see on TV or what they read in the papers. And the cynicism feeds on itself because the more cynical we get, the more we say, who cares about moral standards? Everybody's breaking it anyway. And then, of course, every, you know, one out of every ten of us who are doing that get, gets, become a scandal, and then that deepens the cynicism. Cynicism is there, and here's the reason why. What happened to H.G. Wells' uh, uh, optimism? What happened to the, to the Carl Island approach to, uh, understanding of life? Here's what happened. Several hundred years ago, all of Western society was based on Christi- a Christian vision. Whether it was Catholic or whether it was Protestant or whether it was Orthodox, here was the Christian vision. That the world is a difficult place with lots of problems, but there is an authoritative word, the Bible. There's a supernatural God who lives in a realm of the kingdom of God, and that, through conversion, that kingdom, that realm, can come breaking into reality here, and things can change. Except about in the 1700s, along comes a view called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment says human beings by the use of their own reason, can figure out things, and we can get better and better. Human beings are evolving toward higher and higher life forms. This is, I'm not even talking about Charles Darwin at this point. It was, the Enlightenment was a particular view of humanity that was incredibly optimistic. And they looked at Christianity and said, all this gloom about sin, that just lowers our self-esteem. And all this talk about authority All that does is destroys our creativity, education, scientific advance. We know what kind of world we want, and we're going to go get it. And, of course, what was the result? The result has not been greater optimism. The result of the optimism has been an unbelievable pessimism. Now, here's why. Biblical Christianity is neither shallow optimism nor dark pessimism. And here's the reason why. It doesn't look at the ideal the way the optimists do, and it doesn't look at the real the way the pessimists do. It looks at Jesus Christ. And what is Jesus Christ? Oh, if he's real, Jesus Christ is the ideal who's become real. Jesus Christ isn't an ideal or a real. He is the ideal who's become real. He has broken, blasted a hole between the ideal and the real. He's blasted a hole through the the wall that's kept the ideal and the real apart. Or put it this way, Jesus Christ, our glorious captain, has opened a cleft in the pitiless walls of the world and he bids us follow him through. It's the greatest adventure of all. What Christianity says is human prospects are desperate and they are also more glorious than you can imagine. Because the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. And when we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, the ideal power comes into our real lives and changes it. And then we find that we ourselves have become the ideal power that God is injecting into the real world to change that. That's what this passage is about. Do you see that? What this passage teaches is, number one, the world needs salt and light. The world, as it is, is subject to decay. It's disintegrating. It's falling apart. Salt's a preservative. So the first thing Jesus teaches here is the world in itself is falling apart. 
Number two, he's teaching that there is a salt and a light from outside the world that can save it. And number three, if you associate yourself with Jesus Christ, you become the salt and the light that comes from the ideal into the real. That's an astonishing statement. That's the greatest adventure. It completely eliminates optimism or pessimism. A Christian cannot even begin to say they're either. And let me tell you this, if you do not embrace the truth in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, and I'm a pretty cautious man, those of you who know me, I can say this in a very uncautious way. Unless you embrace this truth, you yourself will stay on this horrible roller coaster, emotional roller coaster, jerking you back and forth between optimism and pessimism for the rest of your life unless you embrace this truth and get completely above it. The rest of humanity is on the roller coaster. Don't get it on it yourself. The world is decaying. There's salt and light from outside to stop the decay, and you can be that salt and light. Now, let's just briefly take a look at each one of those three points. They're right here. Number one, the world is subject to decay. Salt, in the Near Eastern times, was used as a preservative. They didn't have deep freezers then. So the only way you could keep meat from going bad immediately was to salt it like crazy. And light actually has the same kind of effect. You must keep in mind that there was no electric lights there, right? What were the lamps that uh, Jesus is talking about? He's talking about a wick floating in a little cup of oil. And if you've ever been in a city where everything has gone out and there's no light except candles, you realize how dark things really get at night. We don't even know how dark things get at night. Certainly not here. Now let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. When you're really in utter darkness, utter darkness... Not just dark, but you've got lights from the outside coming in through the cracks. But utter darkness, it gives you a sense of unbelievable vertigo and disorientation and dislocation. What Jesus is saying when he says the world needs salt and the world needs light is that the world, human existence, left to itself, inevitably goes to greater and greater disorder, dislocation, and disintegration. In other, let, me, let me put this as simply as can. Things fall apart. Everything falls apart. Do you deny, let's get this off of the metaphysical plane for a minute. Think of yourself physically. We're all falling apart. And it takes a terrific amount of work to stop it, right? And inevitably it happens anyway. But don't you see? Where's the tendency? What's the natural tendency? Is to fall apart. Eventually we die and we literally fall apart. And we eventually all of our molecules will separate from one another. And as horrible as that is, everything else is the same way. Everything from flowers to rocks. Flowers fall apart quicker than we do. Rocks fall apart more slowly. But even the rocks, they're split. Eventually they're sand and eventually they're nothing. Everything falls apart physically. Think of this also relationally and socially. All relationships tend to go bad. Only with the greatest of effort can you keep relationships together, which just goes to show what Jesus is saying is right, that the natural tendency is to go to greater and greater disorder. That's the reason why, for example, the races can't get along. If you've ever been in a multicultural, interracial situation, you know you have to constantly work, constantly pray, constantly talk, constantly work and work and work to make sure that communication is, is okay and that we're, we're, we're able to keep on seeing eye to eye. And the minute you stop working like crazy, things fall apart. And there's misunderstanding and there's resentment and there's anger. And, there's, and, and look at marriage, the ultimate relationship. Look how hard it is to keep that thing intact. Look how easy it is for that to unravel. Crime and racism and war and class struggle and labor management problems and divorce, all these things just show that the natural tendency 
in the social area is too, is what? To disintegration, to disorder, to dislocation. And let's take it for a minute, look at the psychological. I mean, we, we can keep on going, can't we? But nobody is naturally happy, and only with, the, only with the greatest of effort can you keep yourself psychologically intact. Disintegration is right around the corner any time you start to coast. There's depression there, there's uh, uh, anxiety there, and the context for all of this is something that you can just ask a physicist about, or an astronomer, and that is the universe itself is running down, right? The universe itself is running down. Second law of thermodynamics, in general, energy is dissipating itself. We're running down. Eventually, the sun is going to burn out. Eventually, the, the earth is going to blow up and dry away. It's probably the other way around, isn't it? Dry up and blow away. I knew it. You know, I could, I could feel it coming out. I said, somehow this isn't on the way out. <laughs> uh, everything is going to pieces. Things left to themselves go to pieces. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says, the world needs salt. The world needs light. Now, before moving on to the, next, the second point, the second point is there is salt and light from outside the world. If the world is all there is, everything goes to pieces. If matter is all there is, if nature is all there is, there's no hope. Now, before moving off of that, let me just say, I hope you've come to grips with that. Uh, you know, here's one of these things where nobody can disagree. It doesn't really matter what religion you're in. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or not, whether you believe in God or not. Everybody agrees. All thoughtful people agree. But the problem is, we're not thoughtful about it. We don't face up to it. Let me give you an example. And I know some of... Some, you may think this is cynicism, but this is Christian realism. Some people are very excited about the fact that the Cold War looks like it's breaking up. And you know why they say, finally, finally, there's a hope for the, the problem of the nuclear uh, threat. The greatest threat hanging over civilization has been the nuclear threat, people say. And there's been no hope until now. And now we can look forward to people not dying from nuclear war, maybe not dying from pollution, maybe not dying from disease. What a great world. And what does a Christian have to say? Wait, you're missing, you're forgetting the principle of disintegration. And here's how it goes. Why are you so excited about this? Don't you realize that nothing has ever actually increased or decreased and nothing ever will increase or decrease the death rate? What is the death rate? One per person. <laughs> that has never changed. It can't change. Well, somebody says, but you, you don't get the point. The point isn't just that the nuclear threat meant premature death and, 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 and uh, painful death. That's not the point. The real problem was nuclear. the nuclear threat did mean, and still does mean, the possible end of civilization. No more art. No more music. No more strings. See? No more, no more uh, culture. No more poetry. No more love. The lights would go out forever. Wouldn't that be awful? And again, you have to say, wait, now think about this for a minute. What if the world is all there is? What if there's nothing but nature? What if there is no supernature, supernatural? What if this is all there is? Don't you realize that if that's true, then civilization is just an accidental flicker? You know, some molecules happen to get together some billion years ago and create life. And eventually it's all going out, as the physicists tell us. And that means the civilization is such an infinitesimally small piece of history compared to the oceans of dead time before and after it, that if nuclear war would stop civilization, cut it off, say, a million years early, what is that in relationship to the billions and trillions and eons of dead time on both ends? I mean, nobody's ever going to know about it once it's gone anyway. Who cares? 
How could war or peace make any difference in the end? Now you say, oh my, what a black way to look at it. And I'm trying to say to you, no. No. You have got to see what Jesus is saying, what the Bible is saying, what everybody admits to. Things are falling apart. And ultimately, as the wisest people have said, that makes everything meaningless. There was a young man named Philippe. Let me give you an example of this. If you don't understand that there is salt and light, if you say there's no salt and light, that this world is all there is, then you have to, you have to face up to what that really means. There was a young man named Philippe, who was a French scientist, uh, who didn't, he said, I don't know if there's a God, I don't know if there's salt or light out there, I don't know if there's a supernatural at all. And he was in love with a woman named Francois, and he wrote a Christian friend, two letters, and in the first letter he said this, It's very inconvenient for us to stay together and get married. It will really hurt our careers. We only want this because of our hormones and chemistry anyway. There's no scientific basis for love. We shouldn't marry and destroy our careers, so let's just part. We can each find someone else who can meet our basic needs. And later on, he writes back to the same Christian friend and says this, you know, I don't know why it is so hard to live without a permanent commitment. My scientific understanding of man is that we're the result of a chance happening in the universe, a very complex machine, and all we do is programmed by our genes and our instincts and, our, and social learning. So love is an illusion. So relationships are just a force. Beauty has no meaning at all. But I never realized, he said, that the ideas I had about life were draining it so much of its joy. My lover and I cannot live on the basis of them, even though they're true. It's as if we don't know who we are. Now, would you say, oh, he's extreme, he's a, he's a pessimist. No, no, listen. If you say, I don't know whether there is a God, I don't know whether there's anything outside of nature, all I know is that nature is breaking apart, then you have to admit there's no basis for beauty. There's no, listen, music sounds glorious, but hey, if there's nothing outside of this world, don't you realize the only reason you like music instead of the, you know, the, the hammer of a, uh, or a, you know, the sound of a tree falling down is because your nervous system likes it. That's all. It's just, it's an illusion. The beauty and the glory of it is an illusion. And if you live as if there's beauty, and if you live as if there's right and wrong, and if you live as if there's meaning, and if you li live as if there's love, you are living on borrowed capital. You're living as if there is a God. You're living as if there is salt and light out there, outside of the universe. And it's not very fair of you. Because, you see, if you actually live as if there is a God, you're, you're, in a sense, you're eating off his table and refusing to admit that you owe him anything. Jesus Christ says that there is salt and light, however. And even though you have to live as if it's there, because you know it's there, there's a real answer to where it comes from. The salt and light is Jesus Christ himself. You see, look, it doesn't mention Jesus, he doesn't mention himself per se in here, and yet he does. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That tells us what kind of light we are. And this is critical. He doesn't say we're like the sun or we're like the stars. Because suns and stars have light in themselves. You're like a lamp. And a lamp cannot produce light. A lamp can only hold light. And that means Jesus is implying very strongly here what's stated elsewhere. And that is, Jesus Christ himself is the light of the world, and you become the light of the world only as you're lit by him. It, your light 
is derived. You are a lamp. You're not the sun. Now, when Jesus is called the light of the world in John 1, uh, when he calls himself the light of the world in John 8, uh, just briefly, what does that mean? Number one, it means he's the truth. The truth illuminates. The truth makes all things conspicuous. Secondly, it means he's gloriously good. Uh, he's, he's, he, he cannot lie. He cannot cheat. He cannot do anything evil. He's beautiful in his glory. He's beautiful in his loveliness. That's why we call him light. And then thirdly, he's light, meaning he guides us to reality. You know, you can see a light in itself, and then the light shows you everything else, right? Because we have lights on, we can see the chairs. The chairs cannot show us the light, but the light can show us the chairs. What's the difference between light and chairs is light is the way in which we see everything else. And Jesus Christ, then, is the ultimate reality. When he says, I am the light of the world, he who walks in my light will have the light of life and never walk in darkness again. When he says that, he is saying, I am the true guide. I and I alone show you the way. Now, before moving on, just briefly, you realize what he's saying. When he says, I am the light of the world, he is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, a lot of people hate that, and a lot of people consider that absolutely repugnant, and yet that's at the essence of the Christian message. Uh, Some people say, listen, the real problem with all this is, if you believe that, then you're saying other religions don't have as much truth in them. That Jesus is the light, and all the other religions don't really have light, do they? And the answer, the Christian to that is, yes, that's right. Well, somebody says, I think that's wrong. I think all religions are equally valid. They're all getting after the same reality. Listen, there's no way you can say that, because Jesus Christ doesn't give you the option. He says, I am the light. Every other founder of every other religion says, I'm just a prophet. But Jesus comes along and says, oh no, I'm not just a prophet. I'm God. I'm not just pointing to the light. I am the light. And you see, you either have to say, oh, you're right. You are the light. Or else you have to say, you are darkness. Because what a lie that is. But he cannot be equally valid. He doesn't give you that option. In fact, when you say how wrong it is, some people might say, to evangelize and proselyze. How wrong it is to say Jesus is the light and try to convert people. I believe, folks say, that all religions are equally valid. Well, when you say that, do you realize what you're doing? You're saying that your particular religious perspective, which is relativism, has more light than mine. You see what you're saying? What you're just saying is, I have a particular understanding of religions that they're all equally valid. And therefore, my understanding, my religious perspective, has more light than that of you who are so narrow into thinking that Jesus is the light of the world. And what you're doing is you're proselytizing me by saying, I can't proselyze you. You're saying, right, you must adopt my position and be more tolerant of other people, which is another way of actually evangelizing somebody to not evangelize. You can't argue for relativism without denying it. Jesus Christ is either the light of the world or he's darkness. And by his claim, he puts you in that position. Now, if Jesus is the light, if he's the only way that we're ever going to see reality, if Jesus is the salt, he says... In me, all things hold together. If only Jesus Christ can renew the world so that relationships stay together, so that the body eventually stays together, only Jesus Christ can renew the heart so that the the psyche stays together, then we're no longer pessimists or optimists. We can be realistic about disintegration and we can see what can happen if the life of the ideal comes into the real. Now, finally, Jesus points out that you and I can be the salt and light of the world if we associate with Jesus, 
In other words, if we receive him as Savior, his light comes in. His salt, his preserving power comes into our life, and we become the salt of the earth, and we become the light of the world. That has got to be one of the most scary things that anyone's ever said. And I hope you are scared. And if you're not scared, I have three minutes by which, through which I can make you scared. I have three minutes to do it. When Jesus Christ says, you are the salt and the light of the world, this is what he's saying a Christian should be like. Okay, now hold your breath. Number one, salt and life, salt and light, excuse me, expose decay and darkness. By, if you are light, that means your life should be so beautiful that when it comes into contact with other uh, parts of the environment, the beauty of your life shows up other things for what they really are. For example, if you're a Christian, then just by your very presence, you show up. You reveal the dishonesty in the business. You reveal the gossip in the office. You reveal the racism in your neighborhood. You reveal the, the corruption in your political ward. You reveal the promiscuity at your party. Just simply by being a Christian, you walk on in and it immediately makes, makes what the other things are. It makes the racism look like racism. It makes the promiscuity look like promiscuity. It makes the gossip look like gossip. It makes the corruption look like corruption. Just by you saying, I'm going to live according to what? To, to the truth, which is the Ten Commandments. To the beauty of Jesus Christ. And if your life, by its order... By, by the way in which you handle pressure, by the way in which you take criticism, by the way in which you treat the people who work under you. If you're like Jesus Christ, the beauty of that is going to show up the reality of the environment. A good light shows you real color, right? Have you ever noticed that sometimes you pull out a pair of socks and you can't tell if they're blue or black and you, and you look at in one light and you still can't tell and you have to come to a good light in order to tell whether it's blue or black? A real good light shows you the real colors. If you are a Christian walking like Jesus Christ, then the beauty of your life shows everybody around you what is good and what is bad. You know the word good deeds here, where it says, in the same way, let your deeds shine before men that they may see your good deeds. There's two Greek words that can be used for good. Agatos and kalos. And agatos means good in quality. Kalos means beautiful. And it's kalos that's used here. It says, your deeds ought to be beautiful. People ought to say, amazing. And that's the question. Is your life so remarkable that it shows up the contrast between the beauty of Christ and what's around you, or do you blend in? And there's nothing remarkable about your life at all, and there's nothing about you that stands out. I want to know. God wants to know. See, I told you. Here. If you're light, that means the beauty of your uh, life shows up, the real colors around you. And secondly, here's another one. If you're salt and light, that means you bring joy to people. Now, this is really bad. Because it really is scary when I look at this. Salt is not just a preservative. What else is it? It's a seasoning. It was the original seasoning. It brings out the taste. It makes things taste good. Light, of course, is beautiful because it shows up the, you know, the beauty of things. Friends... What it means to be salt and light means you are not a wet blanket. Now, this is, the, this is what's really tough, because on the one hand, we just said the beauty of your life, right, can show up corruption. And of course, that can get you, pretty, get, get you some persecution. You, the beauty of your life shows up racism, and it can get you persecution. But on the other hand, at the same time, you are the joy of a particular group. 
You are the stability in your neighborhood. You are the glue in your office. Because a Christian doesn't look at a situation and say, what can I get out of it? But the Christian looks like, acts like salt and gets in there and says, how can I bring the best out of this organization, out of this group, out of these people? You know, one of the big problems in business today is people just want to come into the business and say, how can I get the most out of this firm to be, use it as a stepping stone to keep on moving? How can I enhance myself? A Christian goes to a firm and says, how can I make this the best possible place? And sometimes if the thing is mighty big and mighty corrupt, you realize that you can only season just a little teeniest bit around you, right? Just about your cubicle and maybe one or two cubicles around you, and that's about it. But a Christian brings joy. A Christian brings joy to the people around him or her. One last thing I have to say, and that is to be salt and light means the beauty of your life shows up things for what they are. To be salt and light means you bring joy, and also to be salt and light means that you work together. Because a city is a corporate place. We're a city on a hill. Salt has to work together. One little grain of salt is not going to season anything. And that means we have to be a unit. It's true to be salt and light means that individually you get involved with people's lives and show them the beauty of Christ. But actually, it's only as a group that Jesus Christ is talking about it here. Do you realize that? That means, for example, that uh, the way in which the races get along in this building the way in which different social classes get along, the way, in which, uh, the way in which we do our business practices, the way in which we conduct our professional lives, the way in which we involve ourselves in the arts is going to be a way that the, the rest of the world can see who Jesus Christ is. The church is not a club. It's supposed to be a colony, a city, a new humanity where people can see what race relations and what what business practices and what family life and what friendships can be under the Lordship of Christ. And that means that we're not allowed, really, inside the church to only talk to the kinds of people we would talk to outside the church. Do you ever look at somebody, a brother or sister, and rejoice to say, if it wasn't for Christ, there's no way I would be loving you like I do, but I do. And if you have nobody you can talk to like that, you're not being salt and you're not being light. Now, question... As we end, are you the light of the world? The answer is, number one, you have to be lit. Have you ever been lit? Has the light of Christ ever come into your life? That's a question to ask, are you converted? Are you born again? And the only way to answer that is, if Jesus' light has come into your life, there has been an aha. You know, when light shows up, there's an aha. Has there ever been an aha to you? A lot of you, no. Aha means, number one, there's been a time in which you said, I never realized how proud I was. I never realized how much I wanted to control my own life. And it also means I never saw how beautiful Jesus Christ was and how he has done everything for me. Has there ever been a time in which there was that, aha, the lights went on, then you haven't been lit if that hasn't happened. Is it happening now? Give yourself to him and you're lit. And on the other hand, some of us who have been lit, we have to realize that we're not like Moses. When Moses was talking to God, he came down from Mount Sinai and the people said, oh my word, we can't look at you because your face is so radiant. And I'm not sure there's that many people noticing the beauty of our lives. I want to know, is there beauty about your life or do you blend in? And you say, I wish there was. Well, listen, Moses was up uh, for 40 days and 40 nights talking to God and you expect that every three days to spend five minutes with him is going to be enough to make you the light of the world? No way. You need to seek him. Let's do that now. Let's pray.